Welcome to the Female Insight Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. Welcome to the Female Insight Zone. This is Mary Beth Kuzmeski. Today I'm interviewing Libby Gill. She is absolutely amazing. She is the former head of communications and public relations for Sony, Universal, and Turner Broadcasting. She was also the branding brain behind the launch of the Dr. Phil show. She is now the CEO of the LA-based Libby Gillen Company, an executive coaching and consulting firm where she works with individuals, leaders of organizations, including Acura, ADP, Capital One, Disney, and so many more. She's the author of four books, one of which is called You Unstuck, which I'm going to ask her about. And I am just thrilled to have her on the Female Insight Zone. So welcome, Libby. Thank you, Mary Beth. I'm delighted to be here. So tell me, how did you get, what, what, did, what was in your career path that led you to be in this sort of the C-suite positions of head of communications and public relations at a lot of these large organizations? Well, it was it was partly luck and partly just raising my hand. So uh, when I started my career, it was uh, I kind of knocked around Hollywood for a while trying to figure out where my place was, and I ended up getting a job in in public relations at what was then a, a relatively small production and distribution company headed by Norman Lear, who's if anybody knows entertainment, he's the guy who brought us all in the family and all these great sitcoms of the the eighties, seventies, and eighties. And I thought, what a great opportunity to be in this small company where I'll get a hand in everything. And about five minutes later, the company was bought by Columbia Pictures, then by Coca-Cola, and then by Sony. And I just kept saying, yeah, I can, I can do this. I could do that. Raised my hand. And, and in five years, I was vice president of publicity, advertising, and promotion for Sony's worldwide TV group. So it was, it was not being daunted by the challenge and also having people around me who were a lot smarter and more experienced. And, and instead of being afraid of them, <laughs> boy, did I embrace and lean upon them. That's awesome. So, so you've reached a lot of very high levels, lots of success. And then you write a book called You Unstuck. Have you been stuck? Oh, gosh, yes. I was, you know, I, I always wanted to be, well, I went to school, uh, I got a degree in theater and a, a minor in dance, which other than having a job as a tap dancing bear once, this has not really served me too much <laughs> in the business world. But I was, um, I think I had a lot of catch up to do because I, I came from a, a pretty chaotic and dysfunctional family with a lot of uh, mental illness and alcoholism and and uh, not to blame anybody, but I, I think that sort of slows down your progress when you, you hit young adulthood trying to figure things out that you didn't have a chance to learn by role model or osmosis. So I found myself, I, I fell into the public relations world and, and it, was, it served me well. It was a great career. I, you know, I bought a house, raised my kids, all of those things. So that was great. But I got to a point where I felt like, well, okay, I've done this. I've, what do I do now? And there were a couple of years there where I just felt like there's nowhere else to go. I've done what I wanted to do. And what's next? And, and, and that's when I really had to do some soul searching and figure out, do I have the guts to, to go out and start all over as an entrepreneur? And I made the leap. Yeah. And it's, it's a huge leap, especially someone who had been in corporate America like you had been. It's really totally different being all on your own, isn't it? <laughs> oh, my gosh. When you learn it's your responsibility to fix the printer and to order the supplies <laughs> and to, you know, build a team and all that stuff. I was, I was in my late 40s by then. I'd never run a business. 
never had even thought about doing it until I just got to that point. And it was, and I was offered, you know, the way the universe sort of teases us, I was offered a bigger job within the organization at about that time. And and it was kind of an eye-opening moment, but I, I uh, you know, I went through everything you do, I, I, the press release and the headshot and all that, assuming I would take this big job, which seemed like the logical thing to do. And this this headshot that my team had done, so I guess it made sense that it was one of our functions that ended up on my desk, and it had come back from the photographer, meant to go on to the retoucher, and this I opened this envelope with this 8x10 black and white proof of my face with all the flaws circled in red grease pencil. Oh. And, uh, yeah, that's what I felt. And then there were these big arrows and notes in the margin saying, you know, fix the red eyes and get rid of the gray hair and, you know, fix the crow's feet. And, oh, my gosh, it was it was that devastating moment, like when you catch yourself in a mirror thinking you look really great. And then it's like, oh, not so much. And that just to me said, you know, time to go elsewhere, time to do something new. And that's when I seriously started thinking about where am I going from here? And I started my business. I lost 30 pounds. One thing they they couldn't, they didn't mention airbrushing that out of my face. But in that same year, I lost my dad. I got a divorce. I bought a house. It was a tumultuous year to say the least, but but it worked out well. And I'm I'm glad at, you know, looking back, it was the best thing I ever did. So in your book, and then we'll talk about your new book in a second, but in the book You Unstuck, you talk about this thing called riskophobia. So tell the readers or tell the listeners about what you wrote about as it relates to riskophobia. Well, you know, risk taking is is really simple. I mean, sometimes people will say, well, define what you mean by a risk. Anything with a good chance of failure is a risk or that won't turn out the way you think it will or that you can't control. That's a risk. It goes back to just our basic physiology. We are hardwired to avoid danger, and our primitive brain perceives anything that's new or different. You know, it's the the path that you haven't gone down as danger. And that's when all that fight or flight or freeze, you know, comes in, and we get the sweaty palms and the hair on the back of our neck standing up. And if we give in to that, and it's really our survival instinct, if we give in to that by you know, oh, gee, uh, write a book. Oh, no, I can't do that. Or go on the sales call. Oh, no, I can't do that. If, if we give in to that natural predisposition for safety, then we don't step outside. We don't take those risks. So once you get into that habit of backing down from risks, you train yourself that that's the safe way and that's the way you're going to survive without even realizing that the things that you're contemplating will be beneficial or sometimes neutral even if you fail, that you're not going to fall apart. So we've got to really examine our willingness or unwillingness to step outside of our comfort and try something new. And once we realize it's just physiology, it's just our brain saying, no danger, don't go down that path. And then we got to go anyway. Yeah, the path of least resistance is often the one that we choose because it's easier. I don't have to put myself in a position where there's going to be danger or risk or something that feels uncomfortable, but nothing happens until we feel a little uncomfortable, right? That was the Eleanor Roosevelt. If you don't do something that scares you every day, you're not doing enough. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's the butterflies in the stomach. Then I, then I know I've hit, if I'm scared, I know I've hit on the next challenge. <laughs> exactly. So your latest book, The Hope Driven Leader, Talk about that book, why you wrote it, and a little bit for our listeners on that. 
Well, I had written a book years ago called Traveling Hopefully, which was really about, I mentioned my family, it was about getting rid of sort of the stories of the past that we still tell ourselves and often use as those excuses. And to me, hope was what makes you get out of bed in the morning. It was this sense of, I can do a little bit better. I can do better today. Tomorrow is going to be better if I just make these changes or if I just keep moving forward. So hope was something that, and some people identify as, as faith or as risk-taking or as, uh, you know, just what drives you. To me, it was really the jet fuel for, for life, for work and life. And as I kept talking and thinking about hope, and, and somebody said to me, boy, it looks like you've talked about hope for the past 20 years. And I realized I really had. And I began to study the literature to see what was out there. And I had the good fortune to find that just like the happiness research, which we're pretty much familiar with now, that there was this body of emerging research and data around the study of hopefulness. And it comes out of medicine, particularly placebo studies and also positive psychology. And once I hit on that, and it's called hope theory, and there are a couple of pioneers that have really sort of steered the research, the first one saying, you know, people never researched it because they didn't think you could measure it. And to his credit, a fellow named Dr. C.R. Snyder came up with the first hope scale, which I have uh, in my book, and I was fortunate that they gave me permission to reprint it so that you can really measure what's your level of hopefulness. And to me, combining the what seems like an intuitive you know, hope is what gets you, your feet on the floor in the morning and gets you moving, combined with this data about the difference between high hope and low hope people. That, to me, felt like the missing link in the workforce because I dealt with so many people that, you know, the common wisdom was, oh, well, hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a plan. And my counter to that was, yeah, well, try giving your hopeless workforce strategies and plans <laughs> and, and see how that goes for you. Right. So it was really introducing these principles, you know, starting with creating a culture that's based on trust and kindness and respect. Corporate entertainment was not as not a warm and fuzzy place all the time. <laughs> and uh, once I got out into the rest of the world and saw that there were there were leaders that were quite serious and and there really are in entertainment as well. I just didn't always stumble on them, but it was really about how do you build that? How do you infuse that sense of, of hopefulness into your culture? And that lets people open up to that kind of risk-taking that we're talking about. So when you were doing your research and writing this book, what was something that just really struck you as surprising? Something you didn't think of? Something that, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Well, I'll tell you, there was one thing that just kind of blew my mind because you know, we both deal with people and performance and the workplace, was you hear so often that it takes 21 days to form a habit. That's kind of just, you know, common wisdom as though it were written on some stone tablet somewhere. And what I found, because habits, you know, we have beliefs, we have behaviors. When the behaviors become automatic and they're triggered by something, like, you know, every morning I brush my teeth, when they are triggered in context, then we continue to perform them. That's called automaticity. But where that erroneous belief that, you know, 21 days to make a habit, there was a doctor named Maxwell Maltz who was a plastic surgeon. And in the 60s, he wrote a book called Psycho-Cybernetics, which I remember vividly because my dad was a physician and did not like anything that he felt smelled of quackery, including the entire personal development movement, alternative health, any of that. And I literally read that book. I snuck it. It was under my mattress and I would pull it out at night and read it. 
And what Dr. Malt said, and this I learned years later, just in doing this research now, was that he said as a plastic surgeon, it took his patients about 21 days to adapt to whatever new feature that he had fixed on their face, a new nose or cheek implants or a new chin. And he said in about 21 days, it becomes normalized and people are used to it. And that just got misinterpreted like a game of telephone over the years. And people came to believe, well, you know, it must be 21 days. Stick with it and it'll be a habit. And then we find, you know what, I didn't become a runner in 21 days or I didn't do this in 21 days. It's the research on habit forming. It's really more like 66 or more. So it takes quite a while. And I, and I wrote a whole chapter, a whole piece on how you make those habits stick, because that's critical. You can change your beliefs, you can change your behaviors, but if they're not routine and repeated, they don't become habits. So that to me was like, wow, that's why we believe that. And guess what? It's wrong. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, you think about when people try to lose weight or quit something that they think they shouldn't be doing or whatever that is, usually it starts off pretty good and then it doesn't continue after a certain period of time. You know, we fall off the wagon or whatever that might be. But what you're saying is it's not 21 days, it's longer than that. And and we have to actually be hopeful (laughs) that if we continue, that it will turn into something that's permanent, right? Right, right. And it's it's something like uh, how we've trained our kids. And, and it was interesting. Some of this started with the entertainment world about using seatbelts. And I was part of a campaign many years ago to have television shows and films show people buckling up because, you know, I remember as a kid, nobody wore a seatbelt. Even if they were in your car, you didn't think about putting it on. My kids would scream if I backed out of the driveway, you know, without seatbelts, everybody <laughs> without having time to put on their seatbelt. And that's an automatic trigger where you get in the car, you turn on the engine, you put on your seatbelt, and you don't even think about it. So the your brain is not devoting any time, energy, resources to doing that because you've reached a level of automaticity. And when you build a habit and you increase the strength of the habit and you take something as simple as running or walking, so you start out walking 10 minutes a day and then you strengthen it by adding it 15 minutes and 20 minutes and now you're going up hills and you've got a trigger, whether it's your gym shoes next to the bed or you meet your buddy at the, you know, the high school track or whatever that is that becomes a trigger that gets you to do that thing. And then over time, it becomes so habitual that you feel weird if you don't do it. And it's like people that miss a workout and you just feel a little funky all day because you've built that so into your routine, it's become hardwired. Yeah. So when you're coaching executives and leaders at organizations, what kind of are, are you doing this kind of work with them, helping them see things differently, get rid of things in their past? What are you doing when you're coaching an individual to become better? Well, the biggest thing is really exposing people's blind spots. And, and that has to be done in a, a careful and a kind way, but it's also got to be absolutely candid. So I typically come into an organization and do a 360 interview, and there are a lot of like, check the box and give me feedback on this person. I prefer to do it as a sit down face-to-face interview whenever possible, because you get context and story. And I take that back to my client. And some people have a very high level of self-awareness. Others don't realize, uh, I'm working with somebody now, gee, you have your phone in your hand, and often you're looking at it when you're, you know, you're giving guidance or direction or talking to your team. And guess what? They all notice that. 
and they view it as frustrating and disrespectful. And you need to know that as a leader. So it's first that awareness, then it's breaking the habit or substituting something that's more positive. And bringing those things into awareness is really a lot of what I do. And then then we've got to change up the behaviors so that they are actionable and practical and people can see them in the real world. Just Mm. like that example, if your staff hasn't noticed, hey, guess what? She no longer has her phone in her hand. She's not surfing through her emails as she talks to me or listens to me. Then they see the change because we all have this sort of bias. You see somebody one way, it's very hard to change your opinion. So I, I often bring the whole team into the process so they know, hey, here's what we're working on. Let us know how it's going so that people really see, wow, this is this leader is willing to acknowledge his or her flaws, build on you know some new behaviors, wants your feedback, and is doing it for the benefit of the group. Then people really get on board, and they're much more appreciative, and they understand that it, it's not easy to change, and it's not easy to take that criticism. But people who, and I, I find people, some are resistant because, you know, that's just who, how we are as humans and others are, you know, lay it on me. I want all the feedback. I want everything. I want to know what people are really thinking because, of course, it's hard to give people feedback. Even supervisors who are supposed to do that, it's part of the job for their direct reports. Many find it confrontational, uncomfortable, awkward. So it's getting feedback that is more objective and typically much broader certainly than a leader of a team would get, because who wants to give their boss direct, you know, negative feedback and coaching? Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, not it's usually hard. good for the career path or it, they, you think that it might not be. But I love, right. I love, it's very insightful to bring in the entire team as you're coaching and working with one person and letting them know of the changes that this person is making, because you're absolutely right. Once someone has someone's personality set in their mind. This is who this person is. These are the things that this person does. It's really hard to change that. Yeah. And it's no different for a company or a brand. It's that you can establish a brand and, you know, kick it off the way you want it to be. But if you're way, you know, years into it and you want to rebrand and start over, not that it can't be done, but it's hard to change people's opinions because those are, that comes from the gut. Those are the emotional connections that we make. And as animals, human beings, we feel first and we think second. As much as we'd like to believe that we are logical and rational in our decision-making, it's a gut-level emotional thing before it becomes a, a rational decision that we make. Yeah, that is so true. We think people make logical decisions. We think we make logical. Well, of course I make logical <laughs> decisions. No, we, we really don't. That's not how it works. There might be some right. logic involved in it, But like you say, it's often secondary. So when is your book coming out, The Hope Driven Leader, and where can people get it and all of that? Find out more about you. It is out on April 10th, and I'm so excited. They can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookstores, mostly Barnes & Nobles these days, but also some independent stores. Or they can go right to my website, which is LibbyGill.com, and I've got the first chapter, which they're welcome to download, and I've got tons of resources on my resources page, many of the things that we're talking about for people just to grab and use as, or adapt as they see fit. Well, thank you so much. And I have one final question for you, and that is, how do you stay so positive? What's your secret to staying so positive and hopeful? You know, that's a really good question. And there are moments that I'm not. I still have family members, health challenge. 
I'm guardian for my brother who's schizophrenic and was graceful enough to let me write a story about him in my new book and what it's like to live in his head. And so my mom's 97, so I have a lot of the challenges other people do. And what I do is is a daily meditation practice. And there was a moment where I felt like, oh, I'm kind of slipping into that dark side of negativity. And a friend of mine who's just this incredible energy healer said, no, you need a daily practice. Everybody does. And it's whatever works for you, running, chanting, praying. And mine is a meditation that I I talk through every morning and every evening. And it just kind of puts me in the right mood and the right tone for the day. And if I skip it, I feel like, wait a minute, I didn't start with this level of excitement and gratitude about here's another day. And when I do it, which is 99% of the time, I feel the start of the day just, just starts off right and tends to stay that way. So everybody's going to find the thing that, whether it's reading a passage, anything that puts them in that frame, because so much of these issues that we face are mindset. And starting with that right tone can get you past fear and doubt and insecurity and all the stuff that knocks you down through the course of a day or a year. Just great advice. Thank you so much, Libby, for being a part of the Female Insight Zone. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Female Insight Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.